0: Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: So they use their bodies as emblems of the nation, of national strength, that they're, they're the defenders. And they're also sex symbols uh, and they use their physical personas. So it's easy to just say, oh, that's just you know, marketing, or branding. But I wanted to take this masculinity seriously because it connects to their personality cults.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a historian who specializes in authoritarianism and propaganda. Her most recent book, Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, examines how authoritarians use propaganda, virility, corruption and violence to stay in power and how they can be opposed. Ruth, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you. I feel like Mussolini, who you focus on, was... For decades, the forgotten strongman. He is arguably, though, much more relevant to the current moment than the strongmen like Hitler and Stalin that popular culture more often refers to. Was Mussolini's special relevance an early insight of yours? Uh, what made you focus on him in ways that other academics have not?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And indeed, he's still kind of marginalized. And of course, You know, Hitler with the Holocaust and his centrality, there's reasons that he is the main person that's remembered. But I didn't know when I, actually, I grew up in a town in California, Pacific Palisades, that had a lot of refugees from Nazism, like famous people like Thomas Mann, the writer and composers. And so I was interested in that first. And then at UCLA, I studied that, like the refugees from Nazism. And then somebody said, why don't you study the Italian case? Because it lasted twice as long and there's not as much work on it. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And indeed, it's proved to be, I had no idea it would prove to be so relevant today. And one of the main reasons is that, you know, Mussolini was a prime minister of a democracy for three years and he was the first one. He was like, you know, laying down the template, basically. And Hitler was watching him. And then after three years to escape, uh, he was indicted in an investigation for corruption. That's also very contemporary. <laughs> and to escape like the end of his political career, he declared dictatorship. But during those years of democracy, he kind of chipped away at everything, at press rights, at freedoms. And so that's why it's one of the many reasons he's so relevant to us now
0: it is relevant to our domestic example and i definitely want to dive into that but it's also relevant in that italy seems to have taken a giant step backwards you could not have anticipated that when you began this research journey can you give us an update on on where italy is right now and the the new pm and the echoes of fascism and mussolini today
1: Yeah, it's really incredible. At the end of Strong Men, which is, as the title implies, it's about male leaders. And that's why masculinity is a chapter. I do say that it's inevitable that in the future, there'll be a female head of state. But I was thinking more of Marine Le Pen in France. I hadn't really thought about Meloni yet because her party was quite small. But What's happened is we have, Italy has its first female head of state and she's, she's a neo-fascist. Now she's calling herself a conservative kind of to mainstream herself, but her party carries forth the heritage of the original neo-fascist party that was founded after Mussolini was killed to keep the spirit and whatever else they could manage of fascism going. People don't Know about this case is so different than Germany. They they didn't have a thorough de- like equivalent to denazification, and so they had this fa- neo fascist party that was allowed to not only be legal but they had people in parliament. So it was it was small. So her party um, was founded in two thousand and twelve, and she chose for, personally to keep in the logo of the party. It's the governing party of Italy today in the coalition a little flame. And that flame is the original logo of the original neo-fascist party. And so she was a hardcore neo-fascist militant. She was the head of the youth wing of the neo-fascist party. And so if you analyze her government, who's in it, even people who are called like moderates, like the minister of finance, many of them have a background in the neo-fascist party. That's their lineage.
0: You place a lot of Emphasis in studying these fascist parties on the role of virility in animating the strongmen movement and persona. I'm wondering how you apply that to an era in which women are increasingly assuming roles in fascist movements. Obviously, you have Italy, but in, in our country, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is auditioning to be Donald Trump's vice presidential nominee. You don't address it in much depth in your book. You do make a nod to, to Thatcher and Indira Gandhi, but you know two women who never threatened democracy per se. How would you update your thesis looking at how women have co-opted this strain of virility to move their followers?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. First of all, it's really interesting. It's been the right that's given women much more prominence than the left, I would say. And so even though Italy has always had one of you know Europe's strongest left, a center left, let's say, a female prime minister did not come out of that. It came out of the right. And there's a whole... Strain of women now, and we can include Le Pen and also the president of Hungary, Katalin Novak, who was until recently the minister of family for Orban in Hungary, who's an autocratic leader. And these women, two political scientists call this gender washing. It's when women leaders market themselves as standing for women. And indeed, some people were like, wow, Italy has a female prime minister, and that's so cool. But the policies they advance are uh, rolling back reproductive rights, defending the patriarchy, and these women actually like Maloney. She's really tough, and she has. I think she's as much a creation of Mussolini, who was one of her spiritual idols, as Berlusconi, the prime minister who first helped her career and made her a minister in 2008. It was a very pro-Putin government. She was. All about Putin until very recently, too. But there are certain speeches where she is, uh, she does this abroad, she doesn't do it in Italy, where she screams. I would recommend everybody go look at this, uh, the tape of a rally she addressed in Spain for the Vox Party, V O X. Doesn't matter if you don't understand Spanish. She is haranguing the crowd like a female demagogue. It's really scary. She's screaming. And I I have spent many, many hours watching Mussolini. I wrote a book on fascist uh, newsreels and cinema. And I thought, well, she has absorbed the lessons of these male figures. And so basically, they, they internalize the machismo culture, some of them. And they also put forward policies that in the end don't help women because it takes some of their rights away.
0: Well, I want to draw that distinction between the policies promoted by fascist governments and the, the methods that they employ. Because you're right, Maloney's screaming speech is so evocative of Hitler and Duterte and other authoritarian leaders who may have radically different policies. I mean, Putin himself was a communist once, but is a champion of fascist wannabes, because of his methods, because of the style of governance. How important is that as a distinction?
1: It is important. And speaking of Putin, so one of the reasons I put the masculinity chapter in there, and in in a way, given what's happened in Italy and and is happening other places, you know, Strongman was a, it's like a a snapshot and it goes over a hundred years. It's important. That's why from Mussolini to the present, I wanted to kind of write a history of right-wing authoritarianism and Gaddafi's in there because he's so connected to show that sometimes le- left and right don't even matter to these transactional guys. But otherwise, it's a history, fascism, right-wing military coups, and then these new people and and, and includes people like Putin who were communists and now are fascists. But it's easy to just laugh at you know Putin's uh, pictures where he's posing without a shirt. Right? And this machismo, and that's what Mussolini did too. He he and he was the first leader to strip off his shirt for the camera and, and so use so they use their bodies as emblems of the nation, of national strength, they're the defenders. And they're also sex symbols. Men and women admire them and they use their physical personas. So it's easy to just say, Oh, that's just, you know, marketing or branding, but I wanted to take this masculinity seriously because it connects to their personality cults. And so I found that, of course, there's tons of political science literature on gender, but people who study authoritarianism, they didn't, it's like they weren't really taking it seriously. So this is the first book to say, hi, there are these tools of rule and some of, you know, some of them we know, propaganda, corruption, violence, but how does masculinity work together? And so, for example, their personality cults, so they have to be the man of the people, and yet they have to be the men above all other men, and the man who gets away with everything. And that's why he's admired. And this is operative for Donald Trump in our country, too. He's the man who has the most beautiful women, and you know, he gets away with everything. He has what others want. And that connects to corruption, because they're the men who are untouchable. No matter, and Berlusconi also. No matter what they do, they don't lose their followers and their glamour for certain people.
2: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
3: Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: Is there a risk of overemphasizing that characteristic of of fascist movements where the leader is the nation. And I'm thinking about the American context in particular, where people equate the magma movement with Trump himself, I think, and are blinded to the reality that it exists apart from and outside of Trump. And even should Trump leave the stage, we have a very dangerous movement in this country that might have been instigated as a personality cult but goes much much deeper.
1: Yeah, you you've said that perfectly. I totally agree and I always try to look at the big picture. And so what happens when these guys come into the system, into the political system, they spawn imitators and they change the whole political cultures of their parties and beyond their parties. So that in a funny way Trump in a sense is no longer needed. Now, it's very interesting. At the very beginning, he called Trumpism a movement. And that's what it always was. And he also took over the Republican Party and he submitted it to a kind of authoritarian discipline. There was a party line, very effective, right? But he spawned imitators. And like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has carefully studied him. He even imitates his hand gestures. He looked at what was working but how he could go beyond him. And this happened in the Philippines too. It's a kind of syndrome where if you have somebody who's really out there, like Trump during his campaign, 2016, he said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. And I I was like, this freaked me out. And I ran home. I was out and I saw it on my phone. I was like, oh my God, you know, this is a terrible red flag. (laughs) And Ron DeSantis would never in a million years say that because he's supposed to be the disciplined extremist. And yet he embodies the spirit of Trump and carries it forward, as does Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? So that's the tragedy of these guys. When they get in the system, they can semi-permanently transform it. And their personality cults can also linger after they leave office and benefit other politicians.
0: And those other politicians become just another useful tool of a much deeper, more more menacing movement. I'm drawn to this quote of yours on Fred Wellman's podcast, good friend, and he's been on this show. You said, they, referring to the Republican MAGA base, they want an extremist who can win elections. And that, they think, is Ron DeSantis, who is equally extreme, but is too smart, like you said, to say things like, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. Winning matters above all else, at least to the elites in this movement. And if ditching Trump requires that, do you think they're prepared to do it?
1: Yeah, and some of them already have. After the midterms, you know, his, most of his extremist candidates tanked. So some people turned against him. But the other lesson is you can never underestimate somebody like Trump. He still has plenty of hold over people. To get back to your point about we shouldn't only focus on the central figure, the, the Trump. Uh, the enablers are very important. I haven't updated this for a few weeks, but the last time I checked, Ron DeSantis, just example, had 45 billionaires backing him for the presidency. He has an enormous war chest and some of these people are people who are used to back Trump. So we have to see what the other people who matter to campaigns are doing and where they're shifting their loyalties. Um, it's not only members of the party. Trump is he um, comes from the Russian school of compromat of collecting uh, compromising information on people and he's done this way before he, entered politics. It's just how he operates. He threatens through information warfare. He threatens through physical. There's all kinds of stories of this for decades. So there's a reason. I mean, it doesn't come out very often, but you find stories like at peak points, like when uh, the second impeachment, where Republicans who voted uh, to impeach him, Republicans, that's important, uh, had to buy body armor or the rhino movement. Where you know Eric Greitens posed with an assault rifle, so we got to you know hunt these people down, and other means of uh, senators. There's reports of senators crying because they couldn't stand the stress if they even uh, went against Trump in any way. And I look at those things because I study foreign authoritarianism, and I turn my gaze on U.S. and like, hey, that's not a democracy here when the senators are crying because they're frightened. That's something else. So, we should all this to say uh, we shouldn't ever discount Trump or count him out. Because, look, in Israel, with Netanyahu's back again, the, the problem is again, once they're in the system, they can come back. And it, it happens. And Berlusconi also came back when no one thought he would.
0: Well, when you say we can't underestimate Trump, I assume you mean more than just we can't underestimate his ability to return, which is a real threat. I've got to believe you're also worried about what he might do should he see an inevitable loss. I mean, somebody who has that kind of narcissism and lack of concern for democracy, who feels like he's going down, what do you think he is capable of within the Republican Party and and then I guess more broadly?
1: Well, we saw January 6th was a, a clue um, a violent coup attempt. Well, well that was the culmination of the process of trying to overturn the election and it didn't work as an armed operation. It didn't work. And the other parts of it didn't work because he hadn't what we call autocratic capture where you you have all the judges on your side. He didn't have enough he didn't have time. Because we forget, you know, these other people like Victor Orban, Victor Orban's been in power like over ten years, right? So Trump didn't have time to, to capture everybody. So it didn't work. However, there's, it's coming out slowly how many elites inside all these agencies were collaborating with him and not just the GOP, you know, they're texting, you know, with Mark Meadows uh, until one day before January 6th, like, oh, how are we going to help, you know, leader? Right. You know, Mike Lee says, I'm working 14 hours a day to help leader. This is the cult, right? So he's been very successful. And then the Secret Service and then the Pentagon, it hasn't come out fully how many people were uh, or are on his side, right? In the institutions. Um, So he's capable of anything. And in my endings chapter in Strongman, which was in a way the most interesting chapter to write because the psychological aspect comes in. So for a, a democratic leader with a small d, when they have to leave power, they expect it. It's like their time is up and they're going to talk and think about their legacy. In the, in the States, they're going to have the presidential library. But for authoritarian-minded leaders, it's like a death. They need the acclaim. They're also terribly worried about uh, investigations and, being, and losing immunity because they're very corrupt, uh, every single one. And so they do desperate things and they start there's studies about this they can they can start wars they can there's all kinds of things stage coup attempts self coups which is what Trump's was and um, that's another reason we should not we should not count him out and we have to be very wary and now he's just been allowed back on Facebook which is a total i mean a few, i was going to say only in the states with someone who staged a self coup be allowed back on on major media platform. But they were they've been a partner of his since two thousand sixteen. He provided them with a lot of income from ads and stuff. So I don't know what the mix of reasons was to put him back on, but for democracy it's a nightmare.
0: In spite of all of that, you have resisted applying, as you call it, the F word to (laughs) Donald Trump. We're talking about fascism, of course. We'll we'll keep this episode PG. Why that resistance?
1: Yeah, I think I'm a little less resistant to doing it now. and, And there are figures like Tucker Carlson, for example, he's a fascist demagogue. There's just no doubt about it, everything about him. I didn't want to use it before because i felt like because the reference point is always hitler dictatorship and people would say well you're speaking out we still have a two party system so what are you talking about it's satisfying to call people fascists and i take some heat from other people like you should be doing this but i preferred the word authoritarian because actually fascism was a historic movement and it and it exists but in a different form today today they come to power through elections. It's not a one-party dictatorship other than the communist states, you know, China, North Korea, et cetera. So I felt like it would mislead people to just say there's fascism. And so people would say, well, if we don't see Trump trying to abolish the Democratic Party, which is impossible, then then we don't have anything to worry about. Fascism was really just the first chapter of this broader right-wing authoritarianism. And we see in Brazil, too, like, was Bolsonaro a fascist? So they're all resembling fascists. We could call them fascists, and many do, and I do sometimes. But I still want people to really understand how it works today. And that's, that's a lot of my interviews. I want people to understand that if we call it fascist, we shouldn't think it's going to look like the 1930s.
0: In the case of both Brazil and the US, the proto-fascist movements tried to manipulate the system, work inside institutions to co-opt them. You alluded to the number of powerful people in important roles who aided and abetted Trump. You had a last minute effort to place Trump acolytes and loyalists at DOD even at CIA that wasn't terribly successful but you know some really scary stuff but by and large those institutions were a bulwark i am getting to the question about violence and the resort to an actual coup if you're not able to work inside the system the the authoritarian goes outside the system and calls upon the loyal faithful to grab pitchforks and torches and do what must be done. Is that a distinction worth making?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you. I'm always uh, up for talking about coups. So a third of my book is on coups. And I didn't know that it was going to be relevant to the states. And this was the part I, I hadn't worked on so much before. And I found it, they're terrifying. And my case study was at Chile. The uh, 1973 U.S.-backed coup, but I talk about Brazil as well. And um, so coups also look different today. There's been a bit of a revival of coups, of military coups, like in uh, Myanmar, but these things change as well. And what's so interesting about the U.S. and Brazil cases is, so taking Trump, he tried to get the military, as we know, to call martial law. That's what Michael Flynn was pardoned and he was put there. And he's very dangerous. He's one of the most dangerous people in America. He's going around radicalizing people on his reawaken America tour. But his role was to obviously liaison to the military. And he tried to get a, a martial law imposed after Trump lost the election. And that would have been a form of military assisted coup. But he failed. So what Trump did is he had been radicalizing followers and preaching vi- that violence could be positive since 2015. And I was in, uh, advised and worked with the January 6th committee, which was an enormous honor as a scholar and a first generation American. And I was interviewed twice and I wrote a report. And one of the parts of the report was how he, Trump used his rallies since 2015 to over and over, um, he's a propagandist. Say that violence might be necessary. That protesters should be treated with violence. In the good old days, you could beat someone up and nothing would happen. So for all these years, and then he cultivated extremists, neo Nazis, skinheads, violent people, militia members, and January sixth. So when he couldn't get the military, he brought together all these people who had been followers, some, you know, GOP officials, and this is where our 400 million arms in private hands is very helpful, right? So he had like a bespoke army of private, like a private army of thugs. And they're the ones who came and and did the the violent part. And uh, Bolsonaro did the same thing. And there it's a little trickier because Brazil had a coup in 1964 and a 21-year military dictatorship. And Bolsonaro was from the army. And he gave so much power to the military more than any time since the dictatorship. He elevated so many officials in his inner circle, many things he did. But he didn't get the military to stage a coup. So we had these hardcore fanatics who were camped out for months, and they did the work. So that's like coups also change. And so it's a very, if you study coups, it's a super interesting development. That, but that's why the cult, you got to have the cult of personality. You have to have the leader. Without that, they won't be waiting in agitation for you to give them the word to go. They have to be bonded to you.
0: Can a coup in, in this era succeed without the complicity of the military?
1: So it's a little more complex. One of my rules from studying coups is in a coup, some people have to act. They're the people who are breaking the glass and and others have to stand down. And that's especially important. And it's called dereliction of duty. And we saw on January 6th, oh, the reinforcements didn't arrive. I mean, I feel doubly sick when I watch the footage of the Capitol police totally outnumbered because I feel sick as an American and I feel sick as a scholar of coups. I called it a coup attempt. I wrote a piece for CNN the night of January 6th and I was like, no, there had to be widespread complicity in institutions. Mighty America with so many police forces and law enforcement that this could happen. So that's standing down. And so when you're not using a regular professional army, it's all the more important, right? They almost succeeded. I mean, wasn't it, what was it, 40 feet? They got within 40 feet of Mike Pence or 60 feet. It was some very small distance.
0: They almost succeeded tactically. Tactically. And they almost succeeded strategically if Trump had just gotten a few more people in those roles at the Pentagon, if Millie had not raised his um objections to martial law or the insurrection act i mean a-, a cash patel in the right role could have effectuated the kind of stand down that would a- allow a-, a coup to actually be pulled off
1: that's right and a complete history of january 6 will also solve mysteries like why were the panic buttons taken out and the whole question of of military complicity which we don't fully know. I was very disturbed because I know that uh, military commanders, and even if retired, they only speak out on political matters if they have to. And on January 3rd, 10 living former defense secretaries, when they did that op-ed, all 10 of them together, warning that the military should not uh, overstep its boundaries and it has to obey the constitution. Having studied military coup of Chile, which was a country where they said, we're not going to have a coup. Our military is loyal to the constitution. We're not going to be like all these Brazil and all these other places. When I saw that op-ed on January 3rd, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, there's a real threat here. There's a real threat. And I had been tracking, you know, like there was also a letter 124 retired high officers, different branches of the military sent, they were on Flynn's side. And they said, there's a dire, basically their letter was, we have to intervene because our nation's going to fall to communism, whatever their conspiracy theory was. But it sounded a lot like the rhetoric of, you know, Chile, the Chilean, once they had the coup. So there was a lot going on and it came close to the fact that those Defense secretaries wrote that means it came closer than perhaps the public knows, even in that sector. Well,
0: because they're they're plugged in. They were hearing those rumors and whispers. What terrified me arguably even more than that letter was when the joint chiefs put out the equivalent of a general order saying, reminding the the force, the entire U.S. military, that its oath was to the Constitution and not to any one individual. They left that that individual's name out of it, but that was unprecedented. The idea that in America today, the Joint Chiefs would have to remind the people with the guns that their duty was to the Constitution and not to Donald Trump was, was truly terrifying.
1: And you know, in history sometimes, especially in these moments, because coups can sometimes be pulled off by uh, astonishingly small numbers of active participants. With Then you go back to the people who are standing down, right? But General Millet was a formidable figure and a bulwark. Had there been somebody else there, it may have had a different outcome. And he was reminding me of this. There was somebody like that in Chile before the coup who had his same job, and they had to get rid of him. And they drove him into exile, and then they executed him. But he was run out of office. And who took his place? Pinochet. <laughs> and that was before the coup. So I, when you have this knowledge uh, of the preparation and what do you do if there's one very powerful person standing in your way who's pro-democracy, I'm triply grateful to General Milley for his ethics. Um, and everybody else who doesn't isn't in the press, isn't in the media or public mind, but they're there, and we have an enormous debt to them.
0: Well, he had a team around him. I've been critical of, of Millie for some things in the past, but the attempt to remove him, and there was an attempt. To remove him was met with all of the Joint Chiefs saying, we will walk across the Potomac if we have to, arm in arm, and resign together if you remove this bulwark. You've talked a lot about Chile and and Brazil and other countries that have not been as, as lucky as we have. What are the significant aspects of the international dimensions of this movement? I mean, you have Americans advising the Insurrectionists in in Brazil. Uh, You have CPAC inviting Viktor Orban to be a keynote speaker. These aren't just discrete nationalist movements. This feels bigger.
1: Yeah, you know, my first book was called Fascist Modernities, and it was about how Mussolini got huge buy-in because he promised to modernize Italy. And but a lot of it was about how Italian fascism was. Fascism was transnational. It had all these networks. There was a huge culture, and when the Axis started, there was an enormous exchange networks, economic accords. We only know we think about the military, the Axis, but behind that was an enormous educational exchanges. So I studied these networks, and so I started to see that they're active today. The new fascists, let's say, and of course Steve Bannon is a major hub. And he lived abroad. He was in Italy. He advised Bolsonaro. He advises Trump. And so the GOP, I think it's very important to say this. And I said it on PBS and people from the mail I got after, people were very shocked. But the GOP is, I do see it as an autocratic party. That's its culture now. It's kind of out of democracy. That's why Marjorie Taylor Greene, the conspiracy theorist extremist, could actually be a, a major, she could be a vice president or whatever. She could be president one day, as crazy as that sounds to people. what they're not only interested in wrecking democracy at home, they are embedded and part of these far-right networks that are global. And I'm going to be writing a piece about these networks. What happened in Brazil? And the role of Jason Miller and Bannon, these this kind of Trump White House and Trump-Bolsonaro connections, and Eduardo Bolsonaro, it goes both ways, who was at the White House on January 5th. Because he has they have coup knowledge. <laughs> they know how coups work. And it's really interesting to me. I was like, oh, why is Eduardo Bolsonaro there the day before the coup attempt? Okay, that's really interesting. But the Brazil part, sensitize the public to that one link. But there are the links with Orban. There are links with now with Maloney, the neo-fascist in Italy. Of course, the Putin, uh, pro-Putin faction of the GOP. And Putin's been the funder of many of these. And Orban is kind of stepping up more uh, because Putin's uh, star has dimmed for some and his financial resources have slightly dimmed because of the war. But we have to take these networks seriously and realize that those people, like Maloney said that she sees the GOP as a kindred spirit and that they have exchanges. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I got to know more about that. So that's an area that I'm going to work on. And it's like, so I went back to my first book and I was like, God, it's all repeating. (laughs) I hadn't looked at that book in a long time, but it's like, geez, these same dynamics are are happening again.
0: It feels like everywhere you look, these fascist movements are coming on the heels of progressive movements, like the greater the hope for progress. And you look at this country with the election of Obama, his entire campaign, his entire appeal was, was built on the idea of hope the greater the faith in that is the greater the backlash i don't know that there's a question in that but it's just so disheartening
1: well you know what there's a positive side to this and we are actually living through this global renaissance of mass nonviolent protest and we don't hear about it. and there's a lot going on to uh, that people are realizing that authoritarianism is a scam <laughs> Its goal is to get people to act against their interests, to vote for people who take their rights away, who plunder their economy. Um, You know, by 2018, I have analysis of of this, how how they plunder businesses. We need to hear a lot more about this. By 2018, one in six Russian businesses have been seized by Putin. And Bill Browder, whose own businesses were targeted, uh, he told me that if you've got a business in Russia because it's kleptocracy. If it grows to any value at all, the state will come after it. So people the war Putin's genocidal war on Ukraine has and then the very bad performance of the Russian military has opened some people's eyes, I follow that really closely, to how the mighty Russian military, well, it's revealed to be totally ravaged by corruption. I had Stefan Strongman about this already. That's what happens. Troop morale is crappy, just like Mussolini sends people with old weapons and badly maintained equipment and terrible rations, rancid food, because they don't care about their people. So that's one thing that's going on that's exposed the hollowness of authoritarianism. But to go back to protest, 2019 was a global record for protests all over the world. Some were like against economic inequality, like Chile, but they were all over the world. And then 2020, it continued, even though the pandemic and we had the largest social protest movement ever, Black Lives Matter. 20 million people came out to some event and it was multiracial and multigenerational. And the biggest before that had been in 2017 with the Women's March. And now look what's happening in Iran, where it's like, it's very difficult to protest in Iran or in China, the people who, you know, the Chinese waited till the protests were over and then they, now they've detained people because they have their surveillance stuff. But this is going on and it's not going to stop because the young generation does not want to live under repression and they also don't want to be extinguished because of climate, the climate crisis. So there's various things that are coming together and you see that especially younger people, but it's not only, people are protesting in huge numbers. So that's important to think about.
0: Well, well, Any chance I get to end on a semi-hopeful note when talking about coups and fascism, I'll jump at. So Ruth, it has been great having you. Thanks for giving us a a glimmer of hope.
1: Sure, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Ruth for joining me. If you'd like to hear more from her, you can subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Lucid, for free. The link is in the show description. Also, make sure to check out her website, Ruthbengia.com. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars and Sean Rule is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
1: Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better
3: understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.